Welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing, relations, evangelism, and advocacy. I'm Stathis Yorgopoulos, and I'm your host. In each episode, I welcome a guest from the developer marketing world. We talk about best practices, challenges, lessons learned, and share insights, data, and experiences to help you boost your devrel game, talk to, and engage with developers. This podcast is brought to you by Slash Data, the leading analyst of the developer economy, and devrelx.com, a hub devoted to providing resources for developer marketing professionals, including developer ecosystem trends, news and job openings, webinars, a book, and a bi-weekly digest you can subscribe to. Access them all at devrelx.com. Welcome to a new episode of Under the Hood of Developer Marketing. I'm Stathis, your host. In today's episode, you will listen to a panel discussion from the Future Developer Summit, an exclusive event for developer marketing industry leaders. The discussion focuses on open source software and contributions from the following industry all-stars. Chris DiBona, the director of open source at Google, Nithya Raff, the executive director of OSPO at Comcast, Stormy Peters, the director of open source office at Microsoft, and the panel moderator, Sam Ramsey, the CTO at Datastacks. If you enjoy this panel, make sure to visit futuredeveloper.io for more talks and resources. I think it's time to hand over to our industry panel. I see Sam is on the line. I also see Stormy, Nitya, and Chris. I think we're all online. Excellent. So again, just in terms of introductions, Sam Ramji, nice to see you, Sam. We'll be moderating, Sam is the CTO at Datastacks. And in the panel, we have a very diverse range of individuals, all who have been in open source for a long, long time and have much experience to share. So we have Stormy Peters, Director of the Open Source Programs Office at Microsoft. We have Christy Bona, Director of Open Source and Making and Science at Google. Nitya Raff, who also keynoted our day one last week, who's uh, Exec Director of the Open Source Program Office at Comcast. And I think that's the whole panel. I don't think I'm forgetting everyone. So over to you guys. Looking forward to your debate. Great. Thank you so much. I'm going to take a moment to introduce the panelists a little bit more in detail. I'm Sam Ramji. I've been in Silicon Valley for about 25 years as an engineer and strategist. I was head of Linux and open source at Microsoft in the, from 2006 to 2009, which was a fascinating time to be there. I've gotten to work with, uh, with Chris and with Stormy. I feel like I've gotten to work with Nitya, but it's not true. She's just so uh, engaging and, and uh, intelligent. I feel like I hope to work with her in the future. So let me start with quick bios. Uh, Nitya is the OSPO executive, open source program office head for Comcast. She's responsible for growing open source culture inside of Comcast and engagement with external communities. Nitya has been the director at large on the Linux Foundation board for the last three years, and she was recently elected to be the chair of the Linux Foundation board. She looks forward to advancing the mission of the Linux Foundation around building sustainable ecosystems built on open collaboration to accelerate technology development and industry adoption. And she's been a passionate advocate and a speaker for opening doors to new people in open source and valuing all forms of contribution from code to community work. Welcome, Nitya. Thank you, Sam. And Stormy Peters, who is the director of the Open Source Programs Office at Microsoft. She works with people and teams across Microsoft to help make sure Microsoft uses and contributes to open source software in a way that makes it possible 
for the world to achieve more through open source software. She's passionate about open source software and educates companies and communities on how open source is changing the software industry. Before joining Microsoft, Stormy held leadership positions in open source and developer roles at Red Hat, where she was head of the community leads, the Cloud Foundry Foundation, where she was vice president of developer relations, and Mozilla, where she led developer relations. Previously, she served as executive director of the GNOME Foundation. Yes, there you do pronounce the G, it's not silent. And at OpenLogic, where she set up their OpenLogic expert community. Stormy graduated from Rice University with a BA in computer science. Welcome, Stormy. Thanks, Sam. And finally, last but not least, Chris DeBona at Google. He oversees a variety of programs across Google, heading the Open Source Programs Office. In his career, he's helped Google release thousands of projects, including TensorFlow. I'm wondering if those are tensor processing unit arrays behind them, in fact. In his career, he's helped release Chromium, Kubernetes, Android, and Go. And he's also on the board of the Open Usage Commons, a new organization trying to connect naming and the open source definition. He joined Google in 2004 and is an internationally known expert in the field of open source software and related methodologies. Uh, Chris is a published author, informer, editor, and podcast host. He can occasionally be found in the background of HBO's Silicon Valley, where he's a senior technical advisor. I knew there was something spooky about that. And he's recently helped with FX's devs. He was a visiting scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management, and he had his master's in software engineering from Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so just to kick this off, I'm going to ask each of you uh, one question. They won't be the same question so that we can uh, get a variety of uh, lenses on your experience. So hopefully we'll get a lot of engagement from the audience with questions. One of the great things about Future Developer Summit is it's by peers for peers. So ask us the hard questions that you're actually struggling with, and we promise to give you our very best answers. So Nitya, what is your favorite contribution in open source? So I, I interpreted it about three different ways, Sam. One is looking at the world of open source itself, the broader world. I would say Linux is probably one of the big favorite contributions that I see out there because it's changed the world you know, quite a bit, especially the world of software. When it comes to Comcast, I think our Apache traffic control project was a very cool contribution, I think. It's a highly scalable, production-ready, production-tested CDN system. And when I look at my personal contribution, uh, in a small way, I'm happy to be a part of this community. And the area that I've been focusing on is building bridges across companies and communities, you know, from company, community, and balancing the two. So those, I would say, are my favorite contributions. Thank you. Uh, Chris, uh, what is the best use of open source to build a platform? Gosh, I would say that you can't actually build a new platform without open source. So I think it's more, what's the best way to go? How, how far to go with open source when building a platform? So, and you see this uh, is sort of what people are sort of wringing their hands about uh, with regards to how much they share what do they hold back? What do they have as management layers or, or is not in the case of something like say Redis or something? So for me, uh, it's always about what is the, the market? What do the developers expect and need to be able to adopt a platform? In the case of a, a lot of people are like, well, why was Chromium licensed the way it was? And I was like, we specifically chose that license so that it could be consumed by not just KHTML and WebKit based consumers, if you will, but also so that it can be pulled into 
Firefox. It could get pulled into everything, right? So if we were improving the web through Chromium, people could use that, right? And a, a number of people have done that. And so I think it's really exciting. But honestly, if you're building a new platform and it's not open source, I, I don't know what you're, what, you're, what you're really doing. This is a good means test for a platform, which is to measure a platform based on its adoption, right? So it speaks to the power of taking open source into Chromium and making it real. Dormy, where do you see the intersection of open source and developer product? So, so developers and developer products are, are key to open source. I always think back when I first got involved in open source was around the year 2000. And I had a team of people that were working on CDE, which is the user interface for, for Unix. And I went to the standards meeting and I realized that all these other companies also had teams of people developing identical code bases with the same bugs in them because we were debating which bugs we would all fix first. And I thought, this is ridiculous. We should all be working together and building on the work of each other. And, you know, my 30 engineers could help those 30 engineers and we could build a better thing. And that's what we went and did with Linux and with open source software. So at Microsoft, we have all of the developer products, a um, large set of our open source software product projects are focused on the developer market. So we have like .NET and VS Code and TypeScript and developers love working in open source software and not duplicating the effort of others and being able to be creative and build on the work of others. Yeah, and you've, you've, done, you've done more work on, uh, in that direction than most. It's my favorite group of people to work with. I think there were 8,000 people, if I recall correctly, in the Mozilla Developer Network when you were, uh, when you were supporting mm -hmm. the, the growth of that community. Um, I wonder if any, any insights step up in, in things that, one of the things I think about with open source sort of engineered serendipity, right? You don't know what special thing is gonna happen, but something is gonna happen. And one of the things, I, one of my the favorite things that I've ever learned from you is you have this uh, very magnanimous way of leading communities, uh, you told me once, uh, my job is basically to listen really hard, pay close attention, understand what they're saying, and then say, that sounds like a great idea. You should go do that. Yes, I found there's a lot of power in, in just letting people know that they have great ideas. People, people have great ideas and they accomplish awesome things. That's awesome. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open it up to, I'm going to ask different questions, uh, but we'll just do um, like one answer. So whoever's got the most passion around, uh, around this question, how do you decide when to contribute to open source? And there's a little bit of color here that we've been asked. When is it a decision by management versus developers? And how do you ensure the company does it right? So I'll, I'll offer that out to the three of you. So I'm happy to take a stab. You know, it's probably different for each company, depending upon their business and how they view open source and, you know, their, the importance of patent portfolios and so on and so forth. But in our company, developers make the decision. They decide that they want to open source something. And then they have to get sign off from their manager that they want to make this contribution. And then the role of the Open Source Advisory Council is purely advisory. Our job is to make the whole process as easy as possible and to help them do it right. And almost 95% of everything we contribute is approved. The time management gets involved is if it's a strategic contribution. It's, a, it's something we developed in-house, like the traffic control and the CDN, and we want to contribute it outside the company for a very strategic reason, whether to create a standard or to create an ecosystem or maybe to commoditize a certain area. So it's, it's only when it's strategic does management get involved. Otherwise, developers pretty much make the decision. And how do you ensure the company does it right? Right. One of the one of the big challenges, and I think some of the folks in 
and Summit are either working with or leading their own open source program offices. And you've got a, a kind of a gnarly problem around you know, strategy and implementation with typically thousands of, of participants who don't even know they're participants. Someone's just like, oh, I'm just engineering this thing off in a corner, uh, right? How do, you, how do you actually bring them uh, into the fold? I see Chris nodding, so I might, <laughs> I might see what Chris has done. Yes. Well, for me, it's, you know, I, I, I've, I've said this quite a bit in my career. I, I like to think of myself as a very, very efficient bureaucrat. And my bureaucracy is one that is so easy to use that you'll always want to talk to us when, when open sourcing or look at our, our internal web website or, or even our external one. And you'll get all these great tips. And, and, and we're just trying to get out of the developer's way most of the time. When you, when you started a big company like Google's, it's a little, I think it's a little intimidating. And so what we try to say is like, hey, we're just here to help you do it as efficiently, as fast as possible. And then if something pops up that we should be concerned about, we can say, hey, uh, let's talk about this a little bit and, and figure this out. Um, and, and, then, and then you have the projects that I guess uh, Nithya characterized them as strategically important, right? So you have really big efforts around cloud native technologies and around Android and Chrome and, and Go. And, and so when those happen, we spend a lot more time, a lot more high touch time considering the issues, considering the developer impact, considering the impact on, on the company and the individuals who work on it and knowing that they're going to become potentially important in computer science. So, so those are like the meat and potatoes that I really look forward to. But I know that if I don't nail the engineer who just wants to fix something or release a patch or release a small project, if, if I keep the, the machinery oiled with the everyday engineer and the patch flow back and forth between Google and the outside world, Alphabet and the outside world, then when we want to go do those really big things, it's very, very difficult. There's too much stop energy. Right? So I guess, I guess that's what I'd say. That's a great answer. Everything you said. The, the, the telemetry problem is super hard, right? I, I was at Google for a bit and 44,000 engineers all having gone through a grinder to be at a tough software engineering company and believe that they've got their, you know, the, the right to do anything they want. Being able to know what they're doing is, is, is pretty tricky. One of, the, one of the other things that always comes up is, uh, is co a collaboration and competition. There's kind of a horrible word, co-opetition, but I don't know any less horrible words, so what are we gonna use? So Stormy, you've done a lot of stuff in, in this area, especially, you know, sort of at the, the helm of this with Red Hat. How do companies work on the same open source software projects, ship them, and still compete with each other. I think open source software gives them the framework to be able to collaborate together. Um, I think I think it actually makes it easier for them to collaborate, and then it raises the because it gives them a structure, it gives them a license, it gives them a, a culture of and common rules on how to work together and how to interact. And I really think most developers really want to work together. They want to build something bigger and greater, and then they can compete on their own value add. So a lot of open source software participants are not software companies traditionally, they're automotive companies or they're banks, um, and they're trying to build software to do their business. And so for them, collaborating makes a, a lot, it makes a lot of sense in the software industry, but it makes even more sense when your main business is not software. So I think it gives them the ability to collaborate in a way that they didn't have before open source software was the norm. 
I think this is one of the, the biggest changes in open source in, in our lifetimes. I feel like there's been, you know, the last 20 years or so has been very much IT vendors figuring out how we, how we deal with our own stuff. And it seems like in the last couple of years, there's been a huge shift towards open source for everything. We've seen new like healthcare and automotive and telecommunications, banking, uh, new small foundations getting built, some home to the Linux foundation, other stuff like Symphony software being built by itself. One of the things that was fascinating to me in, in talking with the three of you in prep for the panel is all of you end up doing a lot of consulting to enterprises. So I'd love to hear from each of the three of you, like how, how do enterprises best contribute to open source? Why should they? And here we mean these classical vertical industry companies, not IT. So I think each of you has got a, a really powerful perspective on that. So maybe we'll go Stormy, uh, Chris, and then Nitya. Yeah, just, just in the last couple of months, I've talked to large retail companies in North America. I've talked to a bank in South America. I've talked to an automotive company in Europe. And they're all already contributing to open source software and consuming it for sure. And they want to know how to do it better. So I think we're in a really awesome point in history, as you say, where this is changing. It's becoming part of how we do business. They usually have, they have questions across the board from like, how do you decide what licenses are okay to use to where should your open source programs office sit? Should it be in marketing or engineering or legal? Mm. So there's a lot of really good documentation out there. Microsoft has shared how we do it on our website. Google has shared how they do it. You know, Nithya has given tons of talks about how they do it. Like, so there's a lot of really good resources out there for these companies to, to, to learn from others. But they have those types of questions. They're actively involved in open source software and they want to do it more efficiently. Chris, I think you probably do as much work as anybody with, uh, with individual enterprises, but you also took a, uh, uh, a sort of an invert, the, uh, invert the problem uh, approach to this problem with, uh, with <laughs> some of your work. Do you want to mention that? I, I, I'm not really sure which one you mean. Um, uh, so, just tr turning, turning the problem upside down by having everybody sort of um, educated on how to open source uh, to start yeah. with. So, so it's funny, we were talking about, you said, you mentioned 44,000 engineers. How do you, how do you even work with that? Right. And so about 12 years ago, we started doing incoming Nugler training, making sure that every single new software engineer was, was given like a hand say, Hey, we're here. We're here to help please use us, right? And that was incredibly effective. And I thought, you know what? As we buy companies, as we go out there to the outside world, I really want other people to do open source compliance, open source release, open source. Their approach to open source should be as close to ours as possible so that when we buy them, I have a much easier time bringing these companies on board, getting their software into our software repositories. And so, uh, you know, I started... Uh, giving speeches to, you know, like like uh, early Y Combinator demo days, and and at all these uh, VC firms around the, uh, the valley and and overseas too, you know. And so I would I would try to use the bully pulpit, but I was actually doing it to get the attention of Googlers. <laughs> it was actually it was easier sometimes to go and give a speech at some conference, and then some Googler will say, hey can you help me with this thing? I'm like, absolutely, you know? And and because, you know, as you're growing so fast and as it's such a dynamic industry, which is what's great about it, but it also means that it's very easy to lose the thread with the people that you serve, right? So um, so I tried to, yeah, so I, I guess that maybe that's what you meant about turning it on its head. It's like, I, I figured if I could get the whole world moving in one direction, then it'd make my job easier. 
you know, inside that's, the that's, walls of Google. <laughs> that's definitely 10x thinking. Uh, Nitya, as a peer to enterprises, right, being a vertical industry leader yourself, you have a lot of demand for, for your thoughts and your time. Thinking back over the last couple of months, right, what, what's, the, what's the advice that people have been asking for the most as enterprises when they say, you know, how and why should I best contribute to open source? Yeah, as you correctly pointed out, it's easy to believe tech companies is doing open source. But the question I often get asked is, what was the business imperative for Comcast as a media and entertainment, media and technology company to start doing open source? So how did you get the support from the top and how did you put this in play? The second big question I often get asked is, you know, many companies start out with consumption and then they uh, have to do compliance because it's an important element of consumption, but then they just can't get past that to get approval to contribute back from their legal team or from the executive team or middle managers. So how do you break that log jam and get past compliance and start contributing back? And I always, always say, if you consume, you contribute. And frankly, whether you contribute in code or money or time spent, and what the language that appeals to enterprises in general is, you have a seat at the table. You actually get to influence things if you contribute back. If you don't contribute back, you have no say in what happens at the table. And they get that because it's very similar to standards bodies, which you know, a lot of companies know how to work with. You need to be at the table to put your two cents in. And the way it works in the open source community is by contribution of any kind. So, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun um, during these COVID days. While we don't have hallway tracks, uh, as Stormy and Chris said, we've been doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with different companies and different teams to help them get their journey going as well. Stormy, I think, actually has done some work to create a hallway track. Uh, so that might be something that people are, are interested in. I don't know if you want to mention that briefly, Stormy, and then I have a few questions from the audience that I want to start bringing into the conversation. Yeah, so, so we've been getting together in a hallway track once a week, every other week, um, just to discuss things that you would normally discuss in the hallway. Because now it's, it's very scripted, the not scripted, the conversation's not scripted, but it has a topic that we're in. There's definitely speakers versus audience. And the point of the hallway track is that anyone can approach the speaker and have a conversation and have a voice just like the speaker. Which is a, a pretty cool, again, inversion of what's been happening with our response to COVID, right? How do you have that serendipity and how do you, how do you have peripheral vision? And they get to meet new people. Yeah, it's super fun. Yes. Provocation of a good question. So speaking of provocation of good questions, we've got a bunch here. So um, one question here is, uh, it seems like company-based contributions are driving most major open source projects. Are hobbyist projects still driving major contributions? Can anyone here think of any examples? So I think there very much is still hobbyists within open source software. I do think that we have to be careful as we contribute to projects and start new ones that we leave room for both types of contributors. Um, so companies can often pay people to focus on something 40 hours a week and tackle problems that require lots of focus and lots of time to, to learn and to get ramped up. 
um, whereas hobbyists often have very creative ideas, but often only have maybe a couple hours in the evening, a couple evenings a week. And so we need to make sure that we leave space for both of those, both the, the hard problems that take 20 hours to get ramped up and the person that's going to drop in for two or three hours to help you out and make sure you label your issues appropriately and, and make room for both. That's an outstanding point because you can actually track kind of the vibrancy of open of open source projects and a leading indicator is is how friendly that project is to new people, right? You need people who can tackle a quick PR, get credit for, you know, fixing typos just so they can kind of walk up the, the stairway. Nitya, I think you had a you had a comment. Yes, especially during COVID and, and this year has been also a year of uh, civil unrest and and economic unrest and so on and so forth. So in, in fact, it's brought about an opportunity for civic organizations. An example is Code for Philly uh, in Philadelphia, which started some COVID-19 type of projects, which then gave employees at Comcast, for example, an opportunity to, in their spare time, really get involved in hobby projects or projects that really added value to the society they lived in. Uh, and then we adopted it as an official project inside the company. And so we said, you can use your company time to, you know, go do that as well. I think Stormy's point is really, really such a, an important need for both projects to exist. It cannot always be about company needs driving projects because there are so many unmet uh, needs out there, which may not meet the needs uh, or, or the test of the company business uh, value proposition. Yeah, there's something of a maturity model, right? A life cycle of an open source project. They may well start out with uh, with someone who's scratching an itch, to use the famous phrase. Uh, and as it becomes more interesting, more valuable, it attracts more people. Eventually, it attracts some kind of incorporation or not. And when it doesn't, you can have tragedies result. Someone uh, made the point, should we be paying developers to contribute or for contributing? Should we create a gig economy around open source? For example, OpenSSL was left contributorless. I see Chris smiling. Uh, Chris, I'd love to hear your thought on this. So, so uh, first of all, I want to say one thing about what, uh, what Nithya said. So um, we have a wonderful opportunity because, yes, we have a huge number of corporates who are running into open source and are, are really enjoying the productivity bump and, and all the rest. But, you know, we, we can't forget to, you know, open up the circle for people who have been kind of kept out of open source. Open source is diversity numbers. I'm sure is no surprise to the, the four of us uh, have been kind of dismal. And so uh, programs that make that better, right, have been things we've always tried to back. I mean, all, all of us, you know, things like the GNOME program for women, uh, you know, which became outreachy, uh, you know, and, and other projects to bring people who were not typically represented in open source into it have been really, really important, even more so now. So I just want to put that out there, right? But you, you what was your actual question? <laughs> Oh, really? Whether or not we yeah. should create a gig economy around oh, open source, oh, oh, right? So, There's been things like GitTip and, you know, various, yeah, various yeah, small yeah. ideas so, that pay, pay people for their incremental contribution. Yes and no. Okay. So there's been a lot of people who have tried this over 20 plus years. You know, the most recent one, I guess, would be Open Collective and Tidepool. And there's a, something inside GitHub that, that throws a couple of bucks at people. And I, I have to be honest with you, I don't find them... There, it, it's nice, but it's no living, right? It's not a way of making a living, all right? So uh, I think that there's there's probably better ways 
uh, of going about that. So that said, you mentioned OpenSSL, and I want to point out that people are like, oh, how did Heartbleed happen? You know, and there's no one looking after OpenSSL. And I'm like, you know, Ben Laurie's been working on that damn thing for 12 years. You know, it's like uh, Steve, what's his name? His name, I forget. You know, we, we practically had to hunt him down in his on his he like lives on a boat or something so that we could fix the license so that we could get more people working on the thing so open ssl didn't wasn't sitting around un, unloved or unlooked after and people who were paid very well had, you know that was their job right yeah. and that there was a very bad bug you know that's a big problem and we and and as an industry we came together and we you know we, we we fixed some of those bugs and and then you had the same thing with you know spectrum meltdown you can't tell me that nobody works at intel it's like we tell these stories because we think we're bringing justice to open source developers who are downtrodden and stepped upon and it's like that's really not the case you know what we should be doing is saying how can we bring more people into open source development who are not traditionally there right get them into these communities that have been a little walled off right so so brian fitzpatrick who i think all of you know uh he has this great phrase called pack manning right so if you see people talking in a circle you know what they're doing is they're creating a barrier around them right so so open it up pac-man right you know open up the mouth so that somebody has a place where they can walk in and join in the conversation and i really think this is what we need to do in open source that is, that is so. a super good point and it leads to another question from one of the participants content and use cases are important aspects of open source success inclusion of non-developers internally and externally could add up what are your thoughts on that i'd love to start with stormy because she's done she's done so much in in that work, you know, from, from Outreachy, which you, you mentioned, but, but really breadth of contribution has been a hallmark of the projects that she's been involved in. Yeah, I, I think when we talk about open source software, we first think about people writing code, but any good software project has lots of people that participate in it, from users to people that are writing documentation, um, to people at the conferences actually you know, spreading the word and talking to other people. So I think absolutely any good team has lots of different types of people that contribute to it. I, mean, I also think companies bring some new new ways of, of working on projects as well that weren't typically part of open source software. So I think product managers and people testing for accessibility needs are also other types of roles that we're bringing um, as we grow in maturity. Kelsey Hightower mentioned recently in a conversation uh, we had that there's an open source maturity curve from you contributed code and now you have doc and now you have a logo now you have a foundation and now I want it as a service, right? There's, there's kind of like, just, you know, let me use this awesome stuff that you're, that you're building, but uh, you know, don't, don't create barriers to, uh, to usage. There's a comment, which I'm going to address. It's a uh, obvious or not major contributors to the projects the panelists are involved with. I, th I think there's a lot of paper tigering and, um, and false narratives around how we, how we think about open source development to Chris's point. Like it's not open source developers are, are, are not, and really have not been downtrodden. Um, you know, back when I was at Microsoft, there was a lot of fear of litigation against open source developers, which I think I and others were able to eliminate. That was the bigger fear. But developers typically get paid super well. When we talk about hobbyists, we're talking about full-time software engineers who are doing something other than what they're paid for, for curiosity. And often that turns into a certain amount of fame in a new area. And developers know how to turn fame back into fortune. Right, so there's a there's a career and a curiosity and a scratch your own itch perspective that keeps going. Look at what's happening with OBS 
right, with open broadcasting software, which is, you know, maybe the most popular current open source projects around, right? So there's, um, there's no, no lack of work for those folks. We are down to our last couple of minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick my favorite question and use the power of the moderator Mwahaha, to, uh, to choose the best one list. Okay, here's the last one. And each of you has uh, a gift to offer here because you are all, un- without any question, unquestionably, executives leaving open source program offices. So someone said on Twitter, and I, I really, I really uh, felt for this because I've seen so many people coming in to solve for the open source problems they have in their companies, but they're starting from very down low in the organization. They don't know how to get listened to. They said, OSPO can be so complicated and at the same time easier depending on your job title. What job titles make it more complicated or less complicated? If you were, if you were to each kind of close out your, your thoughts on telling anybody here and anybody who might listen in the future, how should you title your OSPO so that it can actually be successful? And we'll go, uh, we'll go Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Chris, and then Stormy. So we have an organization called the To Do Group, where a lot of OSPO leaders congregate and and share best practices. I see everything from very volunteer-run OSPOs. I think Netflix may be an example of that, where you know part-time volunteers across the company work together in a committee to help move the organization to. At VMware, where you have the chief open source officer title, right, with Dirk and uh, vice president of OSPO, there's everything in between. I think the most important element is that uh, the leadership team believes in open source as a strategic element of innovation for the company, and that there's air cover, the support for a budget for uh, you know, culture change in the organization, because it is culture change, especially for uh, an enterprise that's not been in technology. It, it sure helps to have a title, but you don't need one, is what I'm saying. Um, you need sponsorship at the top, and you need a will and a desire to change as a culture. Thank you. Chris? I think that's really well put. Um, it, it comes down to, is the organizational will there and how do you support that ongoing? So if you actually want to stand up you know, full-time employees who care about open source for your company, you know, uh, what I usually ask people is like, well, who wants it inside your company? Is it, a, is it a sales function, a CTO function, a CIO function, a general counsel function? Because that's gonna dictate the directions you go in and, and maybe even limit you, you know? So it really comes down to what's best for the organization you're in. And sometimes that's just a discussion of risk management. Like, is there any actual risk in taking part? And then who gets to decide that, right? So, yeah. Thank you, Chris. Stormy, last answer. Yeah, so I think I think there's a lot of energy and a lot of angst that goes into trying to figure out where your open source programs office should fit and what the title should be and who should use it. Here's the secret. You need all of them. Like go out and make your virtual team across your organization. I'm sure there's someone in your company in the legal team who thinks open source software is fascinating. Go find that person and recruit them to help you. I'm sure there's someone in the CIO or IT department who thinks open source software is fascinating. Go find them. There's probably somebody who's already brought open source software into parts of your organization. Find them. Like create your team that includes all of those roles. Um, even just a you know an imaginary team without an official title and bring them together and you will have your ospo that's awesome well on that on that awesome and inclusive note 
Uh, I'd like to ask the audience to join us in thanking our distinguished panelists and join us all in the networking area where we can recreate a bit of that hallway track uh, mentality and see what we can do to answer you one-on-one. Thank you so much. And Andreas, thank you for inviting us all. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Nitya. Thank you, Stormy.